Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fund Calibre. This week, we're focusing our attention on the continent as we look at inflation and energy risk in Europe and what buying opportunities could be available for investors in European equities. I'm Chris Sarley, and today we're joined by Will Cuss, one of the co-managers of the elite-rated Bearings Europe Select Trust. Will, thank you for joining us today and talking about all things Europe. Hi, Chris. Pleasure to speak with you. Let's start with a lovely macroeconomic view of the environment in Europe at the moment. We always hear things about there's a new disaster around the corner, but you know how, how are companies generally faring with, with higher interest rates, inflation, and sort of slowing economies? Yeah, so inflation and its path from here is probably still the dominant debate in, in Europe. And I think it's been an interesting few months because we've seen headline inflation data that would suggest the worst is over for Europe. So we've seen a drop from 10.6% in, in November to 92 in December. Um, and inflation for the Eurozone is expected to hit about 8.5% in January. And I suppose what's interesting is underlying that headline number, that there have been some big moves in commodity prices. So that includes things like industrial metals that are back to pre-war levels, it includes things like plastics and resins and things like freight prices, which are down some 80% since peak. So some really, really material moves and it even includes some of the softer commodities like wheat and corn. Now, the number one constituent uh, in the inflation debate has probably been energy. <clears throat> and that's been the biggest driver of inflation for 2022. And the, the gas forward market has also come back significantly too, back to pre-war levels. So it's, we're at an interesting point uh, at the start of 2023. And, and specifically with energy, it's interesting because, because the availability of really gas is now better than we'd feared a few months back. So storage levels for the continent are at the top end of the historic range for this point of the season. That's thanks to some stockpiling efforts. It's thanks to some benign weather uh, and a few proactive measures too. And when we when we really start to look ahead um, for the prospects for the European corporate uh, and for the European household, things look incrementally better now than they did uh, back in the autumn. So, you know, the energy availability risk has abated a little bit for for the winter of twenty three twenty four, and. When we think about inflation and what that means, well, we're going to start to see the base effects from March 23 kick in, start to annualize some of those big increases in things like energy, but also food. Um, and then I guess longer term for the continent, it's probably also worth just reminding that you know we should start to see some new gas supply, really Middle Eastern supply, come on stream around the middle of the decade. Uh, that coupled with growing investment in renewables, does offer a glimmer of hope for the continent and, and perhaps a path away from Russian energy dependence. Now, ultimately, you know, our goal as a reminder is to be focused on the cost structures of the corporates we're looking at and understanding where the pressures may be growing or easing. Um, but that's really kind of snapshot of the backdrop. I mean, you, you kind of started answering the, the the next question I had, which was. While, while obviously you, your your mind is focused on the backdrop, I mean, to an extent, I mean, how much does that, I mean, how much do you care basically? Because, you know, you, your focus is on about identifying companies that can do well in, in any sort of economic backdrop. So do they, do they tend to have the similar characteristics that almost mean the backdrop doesn't matter so much? Things like, for example, 
pricing power in an inflationary world? Yeah, it's a great point you make. And ultimately, you're right to, to, to say we are after companies with idiosyncratic growth levers, you know, those where the growth is not just tied to a top-down commodity price move or tied to a GDP number. So we are looking for companies that can drive growth through a new product, through entering a new market, perhaps even um, a transformational strategy. Mm-hmm. But we do need to think about how the corporates operate in the wider uh, economy and, and what's happening to their cost structures and, and their end markets. So often we use what we're seeing in commodity prices to inform the conversations we're having with the corporates. Now, <clears throat> when we think about any stock and identifying opportunities, you know, we put equal importance on growth, so those idiosyncratic growth levers, as well as quality and valuation. And I think the quality point's a really important one. And we spent a lot of time thinking about it, and it's really mattered this year because for us, it's both qualitative and quantitative. So, you know, we're looking for the competitive advantages, the most, you know, you typically think about when you think about quality company, but also quantitatively how that manifests in things like returns, things like cash flow, et cetera. So it, it matters where the company is today, but also the journey it's on. So we're looking to reward companies that are improving. In terms of the how, you know, you kind of alluded to you know, how do we get there? Well, <clears throat> It's largely through the interactions we have with the company. So we have conversations, much like you know you and you and I are having now. Um, we do something like 250 of these conversations a year, and what's well, one of the great things about the smaller company asset class? Um, we're fortunate we get access to the decision makers in the companies. So you know we speak to the CEOs, the CFOs, the COOs. Um, that's something that's less frequently afforded to you know colleagues in the in the larger cap asset classes. So, what we're looking to glean from those interactions is, <clears throat> firstly, what is the strategy the management team are implementing, and secondly, how are they dealing with a lot of the challenges which at the moment have been largely exogenous factors, could be the freight prices, the metal prices, etc., the, the wage inflation, for instance that they're dealing with, how they're going to mitigate it, how they're going to price for it, and trying to evaluate uh, those two things together. So hopefully it gives you a feel. Mm. Is that easy to do over the long term when you've got things like war and the pressures around, you know, we talked about some of the energy prices and things like that. Is it easy to take a long-term view when things like that are happening? Well, the volatility has been really tough and testing this year, and we've seen some big correlated moves in, in sectors. And ultimately, what we're trying to do is delineate where a, a big top-down change has broken a thesis um, from where actually it's creating an opportunity. So we think about the first, really the first three quarters of, of last year, it was kind of a risk-off sentiment. It was really, it was really kicked off post the invasion um, and the big inflationary forces that are accelerated. Um, and we saw expensive sectors sell off the most. We saw discretionary names being sold off aggressively. And and it was interesting because, you know, to your point, <clears throat> you had some sectors. I mean, the worst sector uh, was probably the e-commerce sector, kind of classified as a COVID winner. Within that space, to give you give you two extreme examples, you had stocks where 
they were cash burn, burning. You know, they needed to tap equity markets to grow. They were loss making, and you could see why actually there could be companies in this sector that might not survive um, this down cycle. But you also had companies that were sold off some 80% plus, where actually they were profitable, where actually they had big net cash on balance sheet. They wouldn't need to tap equity markets. And in fact, they'd probably hoover up share from their weaker competitors. Those two correlated sell-offs, you know, when you sit there with your fundamental investment hat on, it could well lead to an opportunity. So that's the kind of thing we've been thinking about where is the risk mischaracterized? And really, that should be borne out over the longer term in in, um, in good share price performance. We 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 sort of have to talk about some of the specific opportunities when you when you talk about small caps. Obviously, under researched area of the market versus some of the larger peers. Um, I think we caught up with Rosemary about a year ago, and we t- we discussed Tool, which is sort of known for its sort of roof racks, but also expanding into the the baby stroller market. And she was sort of sort of very positive on the market and talking of more product lines coming on, maybe could you give us a bit more of a sort of update on the company and whether you're still invested and if so, why? Yeah. So Tool, or as the Swedes say, Tula, um, it's a company we know well um, over many years. It's been a successful holding for us. Um, And basically, as a reminder, they are leaders in a couple of small niches, so roof racks for vehicles and bike-related accessories. And they've got a successful track record of building brands, <clears throat> but also innovating products. So they're kind of at the premium end, and they've been doing a great job there. Now, with that said, uh, we actually exited that stock in the year. And we did so because we saw headwinds building um, after a period of very strong growth, very strong execution. Um, through the lockdowns we saw in, in Europe. And I, I guess those headwinds <clears throat> revolved around both the demand side, but also the supply side. So we were seeing evidence on the demand side of inventory building up with the likes of distributors in, in the UK and Europe. So people like Halfords talking about bike inventory building, but also coupled with some of those commodity prices we talked about um, a second ago and what that might mean for for margins. So we were at a juncture where we could see margin pressure hitting the company for the next 12, 18, 24 months. That wasn't reflected in consensus or indeed the valuation. Stock had been a very good long-term performer, trading on a big premium to the sector and the market. Um, And whilst there was this exciting, and still is, this exciting baby stroller opportunity, new addressable market, we thought the likelihood was it would be overshadowed, um, at least in the in the coming year or two. So subsequently, we made the decision to take profit in the name. So we exited back in the summer. Now, subsequently, the company did profit warn. Um, we saw some of those risks materialize, and we did see a period of underperformance. So that's where we are now. <clears throat> Do we still interact with the company? Could it feature again in the portfolio in the future? Quite possibly, yes, to both. So, you know, we are engaging with them. Um, we will absolutely continue to stay in, in contact. And we're starting to see those risks be reflected in, in the consensus expectations and the valuation. So uh, watch this space. But, um, but it's been a good exit so far. Um, we also talked about a year or so ago about um, another company called Ellis. Could you maybe just remind us about what the company does and and did the sort of reopening boost business as much as was hoped? Sure. So Ellis is a um, another leader in a niche. They 
lead the niche of textile rentals. So essentially, they will do hotel linen and workwear, and they will provide clean linen to hotel groups, and they will pick it up, wash it, and deliver it back. Uh, so they're leaders in Europe, and they've also got a good Latin American presence. So the way to think about this business is really it's a network density business model. So economies of scale are what really matter. If you want to get good throughput on your plant network and your logistics, so basically your, your fleet of trucks, you need that scale. Unfortunately, at least have that. They're very efficient, the way they run their network and their fleet. And that's led to some really sticky client relationships uh, and also translating some good margins and very attractive returns. Now, you know, direct answer to your question, it has been a good performer seen very strong price performance come through as the numbers have exceeded expectation. And a couple of things to highlight there. One, they have navigated the cost challenges far better than many feared. So that's thanks largely to the very tight contracting. It's enabled fast pass through on things like energy inflation and wage inflation. And more recently, you know, you mentioned specifically the reopening. Yes, they have been a beneficiary of that. More business and leisure travel have supported the end markets, be it restaurants, be it hotels. And they actually posted mid-teen organic growth in, in their most recent quarter of Q4, so which was you know, ahead of expectations and is leading to upside risk to consensus. Um, and that's for a stock which is on a discount to sector and benchmark. So we've seen good share price performance there. Um- We've been doing a lot of discussions with some of your peers in the US sort of smaller company space and, and in particular this theme of sort of onshoring and nearshoring of you know production lines and suppliers being a well being a boost basically to to small caps in particular. Is that something you're seeing in Europe? And if so, is that a long-term trend? I mean, what we are seeing with corporates and actively discussing is how supply chains on the continent being reworked um, and specifically to, to the question of nearshoring is some of that will result in in nearshoring or, or kind of friend shoring um, i suppose the backdrop is you know we need no reminder it's been a period of prolonged disruption for european corporates you know we've seen you know, logistical bottlenecks with with ports and shipping uh, in 2020 we saw semiconductor shortages arise after that and uh, and, and then the kind of issue of tariffs um, um, arising subsequently. And, you know, we are hearing from some of the corporates that they're looking to secure supply chains closer to home. So it does have a potential to be a benefit to some of our European corporates that are either well located or can help reduce some of the friction of moving or reworking those supply chains. So, you know, I think about the portfolio at the moment, you know, we have a position in a, in a, company called GTT, for instance, that's an energy tech business. Uh, and they've got a dominant position, really a, a monopoly globally in this in this very interesting niche of cryogenic membranes for LNG transportation. Mm-hmm. And what we have seen there is very strong order growth, um, in part due to exactly that. It's, it's the reworking of energy supply chain away from Eastern Europe. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, nearshoring or, or kind of more generally proactive supply chain management you know, will continue to be um, an active area of questioning in our company meetings. And hopefully, 
will materialize in, in some interesting opportunities and investment ideas too. And just lastly, obviously, you know, in, for most fund managers, they sort of live and die by their stock selection. But particularly, you know, in the small cap space, I think it's extremely important. Could you maybe just highlight a couple of other opportunities you found lately and more sort of bullish on them? Sure, sure. So you're right. I mean, as ever, we we kind of cast our net wide. Um, we're open to a whole host of investment opportunities across our geographies and across our sectors. And there have been a number of investments um, in recent months. Some of the names have been stocks we've owned in the past, uh, and subsequent to our to exiting them, they have sold off uh, really quite dramatically. Maybe entered the investable universe after after graduating from it. And you know, one example of of one of those names that we've revisited is, is a company called Gerishimer. And Gerishimer is a Pharma packaging manufacturer, and they do other sectors as well, but they, they make glass vials for, for medication, for instance. And I guess really I'd characterize this one as being an exciting product mix story. So they're moving to sell much higher value, much higher margin products, um, which are more complex into the pharma sector. And they've got a particularly interesting niche in the uh, their global lead supplier yeah, for the obesity drug market, which is really taking the US market, particularly by storm. Um, it's this exciting new molecule and um, and their footprint is leading to them being very well positioned. So we're at a point where they have a multi-year demand assurance from their big customers, um, far more demand that they can actually meet. That's underwriting the investments they're making. Meanwhile, they actually were, were either either through luck or by judgment um, took out a, a long duration five year hedge on energy prices at the end of 2019. So they've got this really good demand visibility with actually excellent cost um, visibility, and we think that can de-risk the earnings over the next few years for a stock which is on a really undemanding valuation. It's on a low double digit earnings multiple. Um, and we think there's scope to, to meet and to pass expectations. That's one. I mean, you know, we've also been doing work on on new names. Um, one of those that's entered the portfolio is a Swiss industrial called Acceleron, and and they're a lead leading company in the servicing of turbochargers. Um, these are things that go into the marine industry or or energy generation, and it was spun out of a much larger conglomerate, ABB last year and, and you know post the spin out we've met with them a number of times and evaluated the strategy and appraised its execution and <clears throat> i guess really what we liked and saw here was very attractive aftermarket opportunity and it's really that's the majority it's three quarters aftermarket this business we've got very long duration very sticky um contracts with very good pricing and margin and they're on a journey to expand the suite of services um thereby growing their market and differentiating more versus peers. And it's quite an interesting angle they've got to help increase efficiency for their customers, um, which is both great for their carbon footprints, but also has a nice ROI with with um, with their input costs. So we think that was underappreciated. Yeah, it came to market on undemanding 14 times earnings uh, for what is an offensive earning stream and scope for surplus capital returns because the balance sheet is very strong there too. So that's that would be another one I'd just highlight to you, Chris. 
Um, and do you specifically with companies like that want them to go global or are you happy if they're sort of Eurocentric? Well, Exceleron is a, is a global company. Um, I mean, the marine markets by its nature, I mean, these are big, big tankers that, that will move, you know, across oceans. Um, they have a global footprint in, in, in their ability to service. Um, and that's not, that's not uncommon, I suppose, for companies in our portfolio. We have but a collection of both local champions that can dominate their, their local geography and have good moats there, but also companies that do have a, a global footprint or are embarking on a strategy to globalize. Um, and this one would fall very much in the camp of the latter. That's great. Well, thank you again for talking to us about all things Europe. Pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Enjoyed it. The Bearings Europe Select Trust invests in small and medium-sized companies, an area which is under-researched and ripe for good stock pickers. The strategy itself is tilted towards growth companies, but the managers won't overpay for them. The final portfolio will typically hold between 80 and 100 companies. To learn more about the Bearings Europe Select Trust, visit fundcaliber.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. Mm -hmm.